Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Morning, Corey. Good morning. It's how's uh, life. In, how's life in Idaho today? I was going to say it's a it's a good cold morning this morning. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, it's definitely colder than what I want it to be here in Montana. I think our high today is going to be three below zero. Whew. So, yeah, I think uh, we're getting above zero, but it was minus thirteen this morning on the way into the office. Good thing you're tough. Yeah, See, I'm. I'm not tough anymore. I, oh, I, I grew up on the Canadian border, and I, you know, cold never used to be an issue for me. And then I got smart, so <laughs> I, I moved away. I moved to Montana to warm up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to start wearing a windbreaker or something while I'm riding my road bike into work in the mornings. But riding a road bike? No, not at all. <laughs> I'm like, all right, your IQ is definitely taking some hits on account of the cold. I don't know if we're going to be friends anymore. Uh, I can barely keep my truck on the road and four-wheel drive right now. We got everything warmed up last week and rained a little bit and put a nice glaze of just Ooh. solid ice on everything. And then it just went completely cold, which a lot of times, you know, if it's cold, it'll make it a little tacky, but it turned everything into a skating rink. And Yeah, well, now that Bozeman has been growing as crazy as it has, and we have all these warm weather arrivals, I live four miles south of town on a highway that's notorious for getting windblown and packed down and icy. Most of those people, person by person, are learning the lesson that 60 miles an hour on glare ice usually gets you upside down in the rhubarb patch on the other <laughs> side of the the, the fence. Uh, uh, I, I think the, the best m- money-making operation in Bozeman, Montana, would right now would be if you owned a tow service or, <laughs> or a junkyard. Uh, the number of Audis and Volvos and BMWs and stuff that you see upside down over there and the, on the other side of the snowbank is ridiculous. But oh well. Yeah, we don't have. We do a pretty good job up here. Of most people are pretty good. They were doing a really good job on the roads, keeping them salted up. And but this year they've kind of slacked a little bit on it. But people are still driving for the most part other than the other night i came home from a basketball game at midnight or something and there was a truck with a full-size enclosed snowmobile trailer behind it jackknifed in the middle of the road and a car slammed into the back of it with the front of it all crunched in and of course you know we had Uh, all one of our ambulance and all one of our fire trucks and both of our state police and both of our county sheriffs there but the thing that made it really uh, kind of questionable was speed limit's 25 and they were in front of the post office when that happened. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm not sure what went on there, but uh, was alcohol involved was probably yeah, the first question. Yeah. Late at uh, night and in front of the post office. Of course there is a bar next to the post office and one across the other side of the street. So you uh, probably, probably got that one right. Well, 
I don't know why that's worthwhile commentary for this audience, other than they're all probably nodding their head saying, yep. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you were say they're nodding their head, ready to fall I mean, asleep already. Yeah, I mean, in the hunting space, we talk about the ethical dilemmas we're always faced of: is that a is that a good shot? Should I take it? Should I not? Well, when I'm driving home and I see this, you know, BMW SUV upside down in the ditch, I'm in this ethical dilemma of. Do I stop and lecture them, or do I stop and pull them out? <laughs> I thought you'd say the, the dilemma was, do I stop and lecture them, or do I just drive by and honk? <laughs> uh, well, I'm one of those guys. My wife just gets such a kick out of it. I drive the speed limit. So from my house into town, the speed limit's 60. And I drive 60. And the fact that a lot in the last four or five years, the number of people who are driving 65, 70, and they get right on my hind end, like the fact that they couldn't get the mattress off their back is somehow my problem. So usually I slow down to about 54. Yep. <laughs> I get flipped off. I don't know how many times a month driving into work. And, uh, my wife, she just shakes her head like, hey, you're, you're such a curmudgeon. In fact, we were on vacation last week. She said, you're 56 years old and you're already this much of a curmudgeon. How am I going to deal with you in 10 more years? I just smiled. Like, well, hold my beer, honey. I'll show you. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just, I'm never in that big of a hurry. I didn't move to Montana to have the high stress traffic of... Salt Lake or Denver, Houston or San Francisco or something. So yeah. I'm I'm not changing my ways on account of it. I've been here going on uh thirty some years. I ain't changing. I'm said that I'm too old to change. Yep. So, no, I might you know, I I sometimes try to get places a little faster than others, but if somebody's going the speed limit, I'm certainly not gonna ride their tail. I'll wait for an opportunity to pass them and yeah. Do it right. And that just nothing drives me crazy like people who get right on your tail mm -hmm. and ride it. Like, you know, especially if you're going the speed limit or even a couple over and they still do that. And I I love yeah. my little manual shift on my truck. It's it's an automatic, <laughs> but I can shift down from overdrive to third gear really quickly and no brake lights come on or anything. And there's I've seen people the whites of their eyes glow really quickly when all of a sudden they're uh, they're worrying about trying to stop instead of get around me. Well, I have no idea what that has to do with elk talk. Me either. Zero. Other, <laughs> other than, than <laughs> when it's elk than, season. Yeah, I had an extra cup of coffee this morning, and I'm at the office, so maybe I'm just a little bit more wound up than I normally am. And watching people try to force me to drive faster when it's 12 below zero and my tires are still square, have a flat side on one part of it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not going 65 miles an hour when my radial tires are still kind of boom, 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 boom. Yeah. So, oh, well. Let's talk about elk hunting. All right. <laughs> so I, I went through some of the questions. And I don't exactly know if I'm paraphrasing these uh, three comments correctly, but I am going to paraphrase it. And uh, the the questions, the, the way I sorted them into this folder, were I, I called the folder uh, Weekend Warriors. Uh, and uh, 
I mean, I was in that situation for a long time of my hunting life where I got to hunt Saturday and Sunday. Uh, if I could convince my my wife to take a Friday or a Monday off, I got three three days. Um, but <clears throat> the gist of, of the inquiries, if I were to state it, is how do your strategies or tactics change when you are, because they, they understand that you and I have the blessing of being able to, you know, do this and go on five-day hunts or seven-day hunts. Uh, how do they change when we have to do the weekend warrior gig? Um, and I, I've thought about that. And see, I'm cheating here. I, I read the questions a couple of days before. Yeah, you're spraying I get on to, me. <laughs> I, I get to prepare the answers and then I just throw them out there and you you got to answer it. You, you're, you're on your toes here. So I at um, least have an excuse. If mine sound unintelligent, it's just I didn't have time to prep for it. And I'm making it up on the fly here. Uh, well, I, I can tell you that for me, uh, because I do more rifle hunting than I do archery hunting, my weekend warrior strategy was to take advantage of Saturday morning. And I'll try to explain my logic of why I think that's helpful. Throughout the week, you have hunting pressure that peaks Saturday and Sunday, starts dropping down a little bit Monday, Tuesday. And the elk respond to that in rifle seasons on public land in general units in a big way. And the by the time the crowd has thinned again by Wednesday, the elk start feeling a little bit more comfortable, a little more comfortable. They're still on high alert. Thursday, Friday, they're almost like, hmm, hasn't been anyone in this drainage for four days. So... I make sure that I get to the trailhead Friday night. I used to go down Friday after work and I'd sleep at the trailhead because I didn't want to waste that time driving Saturday morning. And the reliability of my vehicles at that time in my life was such that it was always a flip of the coin, whether I would make it to the trailhead <laughs> without some sort of uh, mechanical issue. So <laughs> just prudent said, go there the night before. Um, because I always viewed Saturday morning as my best opportunity to catch elk, possibly in a more relaxed phase. And then that cycle repeats, at least in Montana, we got a five-week rifle season. And by the time that five-week rifle season is, you know, we've been through three or four of these weekend pulses, followed by a, a lull in the activity later in the week. Uh, by about the third week, the bulls, anyhow, have just said, you know what, I'm not going back to a a relaxed mode i'm just buried in here and i'm i'm not changing my ways until season's over so i use that based on what time of the what, what time of the week the pressure happens but then also by the end of a rifle season i my weekend hunts were in some really ugly nasty places more so, more so than they were earlier in the season when I thought the bulls hadn't quite responded to pressure as heavily. So I appreciate, I, I mean, the people who consistently fill tags only having Saturday and Sunday to hunt, those people should be hosting a podcast. Yeah, that's for sure. No, I just, it brings me back to college days when, 
you know, all we had was weekends usually, and we were driving three or four hours from college back home to to our hunting spot. And, you know, fortunately we had the, the good fortune of knowing the area, which I would imagine most weekend warriors probably should know their area because they're probably hunting close to home um, and getting it done that way. But it's, it's tough because you literally, you know, you don't know what happened there during the week and you get there and there may have been camps set up. And so you have to have a lot of backup plans. You have to know the area and you have to know what the pressure's been like, what the season's like. You know, for me in archery season, you know, we had weekends and we would go and early in the season, nothing would bugle. So our, our strategy would be um, more road hunting, you know, just driving roads and getting out and hiking down a ridge and bugling, trying to find a bugle and getting back in the truck rather than just locking into one area. And then hopefully by about the third or fourth week, we'd got enough bugles and found enough elk that we had consistent places to go and, and get into them but i think that's the hardest part when you only have two days in a row to hunt yeah. it usually takes you a day or two just to find the elk and get into them as much as they're moving around and especially during the rut you know they're out wandering looking for cows and until they get locked in it's it can be tough and so i know when i graduated college and had my first full week of of vacation from work and could go hunting for a week straight you know we still hunted the weekends we hunted the the first and the second weekend and then took the third week off and then ended up having to go back and hunt the fourth weekend but it changed dramatically the ability to be able to find elk get into elk and then hunt elk and i think if you're able to string four or five days in a row your your chances of success go up dramatically for that fact and if yeah. you aren't able to do that you have to be really good at finding elk and knowing where they're going to be at those times so you can get in and hunt them yeah i i it would be kind of smug to give the answer of well don't just hunt weekends yeah. i mean that that, <laughs> that that would be a terrible thing to say uh my but a better way to try and make that point would be if you can block four days together instead of two Saturday, Sunday trips, a four day block of, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday gives you a whole lot of advantages in that it's less likely that both days, you know, on a weekend, what if you, what if you pick your weekend and it's 75 degrees, 80 degrees? Yep. That's such tough conditions or, like for me this year, so I think the weatherman waited and looked at my calendar and said, well, if Randy's going elk hunting, we're going to forecast 50 mile an hour winds. <laughs> and for once they were correct. You know, what a job to be a weatherman. You know, you're right 10, 15% of the time and you get a promotion. You, you get exposure. You get to be on TV, everything for only being right. A good one's right 20% of the time. Well, and I love how they go back and change it after it happens and, and yeah. make it look like they had predicted it. You know, it's yeah. what was the weather? Like? I go back and look at some of the weather forecast and it's like that was not what they were showing even the morning of that date. They, uh, yeah. They're really good at updating it after the weather happens. And I don't, so think, you I don't think that's considered a prediction, is it? That's a guess. Yeah. Oh, no, oh, no. Yeah, what they do the is a fact. guess. After, yeah. yeah, after the fact, yeah. You know, that's kind of like accountants. We tell you what happened when we make your financial statements for last year. That's pretty easy to do. You're looking in the rearview mirror. You know what happened. Yep. But uh, how did we get – oh, I know how we got off, <laughs> off on that tangent. Uh, I, I was talking about if you only have these two-day periods, 
the likelihood of the conditions wiping out or really slanting against you are higher. Whereas if you if you have a four consecutive day period, hopefully one or two or maybe three of those days, you got better conditions. And I know that's not possible for everybody to do. And I, it, when I get questions like this, it makes me that much more grateful for the blessings that I've received in my life that allow me to do this. Um, but I, I, for me, when, back when that was my life, I was trying to put together longer blocks when I could. Um, and it's, it's not easy. I mean, you think about all the commitments people have of family and work and like you, you coach basketball. Well, in the fall, a lot of people are coaching their kids soccer teams or, you know, Pop Warner football team. And it's, uh, it's a challenge. And those people who can do it on a regular basis have all my respect. That's for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And like you said, if you can move a schedule around and I was after my freshman year in college, I realized, hey, they give you a little, they, they treat you a little bit like an adult here in college and give you a little bit of flexibility. And so I looked at the classes <laughs> I needed and I scoured that class schedule looking for what will get me off <laughs> earliest on Friday morning and get me back latest on Monday afternoon. And by my junior year, I had a lab on Friday morning that I found out I could skip and just turn in the stuff on Tuesday of the next week and still get credit for it. <laughs> so I didn't go to that lab all semester. And then I also didn't have any Monday classes. So I was able to leave Thursday night my junior year in the fall and hunt Thursday night through Monday morning and come back Monday night and usually have enough time to get my homework done and turned in on Tuesday what I needed. So that was huh. also the semester that I had a 2.0. <laughs> between that and basketball, it was a, my counselor called me in and said, hey, something's got to change. Either your admission is going to change or your schedule is going to change because you're not going to graduate with a 2.0 and you've got too much going on to try to get a degree in engineering and graduate. So mm. I waited until so. after the fall semester to make the changes and still yeah. got in my hunting. And the next spring I was, I made the Dean's list the next three Ooh. semesters. Holy cow. Yeah, you, you don't want to see my transcripts. <laughs> uh, so here's another one that somewhat falls to that because by Sunday afternoon, I was always starting to fret when I had these two-day hunts. What if I shoot one now? What if I shoot one at last light on Sunday night? How am I going to be back to work on Monday morning? Uh, and I always said, I'll figure that out. <laughs> yeah. I'll work on that. But let, let me kill one first, and then I'll, I'll worry about that problem. Um, but a, a person has asked, uh, does your ethical concern for meat care affect where you hunt? Yeah, mine, mine doesn't. I, and I say the same thing still. You know, we look at it, and it's a steep nasty canyon it's like man if we go down there and kill an elk it's going to be a nightmare to get it out of there that those thoughts are gone it's now it is yeah. we'll worry about it when we get it down and it's that's not a, a reckless you know irresponsible mm -hmm. unethical statement it is i'm confident enough that no matter how hot it is i can find a place to get that meat cool and not worry about losing the meat 
even if it takes us three days to pack it out, there's just, you know, I'm uh, and the areas we're hunting are usually at six to 8,000 feet, so it's cooling down at night, even in early September. Uh, if I can find a draw with a little bit of moisture in it, I'm fairly confident it's going to get down at least into the 40s, which if you can get that meat cooled immediately and get it down into the 40s the first night, it's good for several days. Yeah, I... I don't have that concern or, or it doesn't affect my, my strategy at this point in my life. But there was a time before I understood how to do the gutless method, before I had a good pack and a way to get it out of there, I did have the challenge of, what do I do with this thing if I kill one and will <laughs> it spoil? And so as a result, I hunted closer to roads and trailheads. And my success wasn't very high. Then, thankfully, there was a guy here in Bozeman who used to own a meat shop who let me come and watch how he broke. He would bring in whole carcasses. I don't. I still don't know how these people were bringing in these whole elk, <laughs> but they'd back up to his meat locker. He'd hang them on the on the hooks and roll them in there. And I got to stand there and watch how he did all this stuff. And he'd walk me through, okay, now if you're in the field, you got to do this and you got to do that. And if you like these cuts, do it this way. But if you don't, if, if these cuts aren't that important to you, don't worry about it. Um, so it was, uh, it was a learning experience that for me was super helpful for my success in hunting was having that knowledge of how am I going to get an elk out of here and not let it spoil no matter where I'm at. So that opened up the entire map to me. And uh, I don't know. I yep. Maybe I was ignorant and naive because I was. I came here from whitetail country and we would gut them and drag them out in the snow. You know, that's how we got them out of there. We never hunted. Well, in where I live, there wasn't a place where there wasn't a skid trail of some sort at least half a mile away. So, yeah. And you yes. could always get a deer out, you know, even if you shot it right at dark on Sunday evening, you could always get it out and yeah. be back home and have the whole thing cut up before you had to yeah. go to bed that night. Yeah. So that was what I came to the elk hunting space with was just that very fundamental knowledge of, oh, make sure that you get the heart and lungs and the windpipe and, uh, you know, <laughs> that that's all the further I had to, had to know. And then uh, it really did hamper my success probably my first five or six years of elk hunting. Um, so hopefully uh, people obtain those skills. I know that out on your platforms, uh, Elk 101, uh, you have a lot of videos on that on my platforms, randynewberg.com. I've got a bunch of videos on that, how to do it. Because I think it's a very fundamental skill if you're going to be a public land elk hunter you need that skill to understand how to get that elk out of there yep and i talk about that in the university of elk hunting online course the importance of tracking and following a blood trail and taking care of the meat in the field is a huge part of success and i think it's something that people overlook and don't prepare for uh, if they haven't done it before, you know, they get out there and they're just so excited to hunt and, and shoot an elk and then they shoot one and they, they aren't 
good at tracking it or blood, following the blood trail and they lose it. And that just, you know, that takes you from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Or maybe they, they do shoot it and it drops right there and they get up there and they realize, I don't have anything with me. I've got to hike out, you know, three hours to get my knife and my game bags and come back in. And by then that hide's been sitting on the elk for six hours and the chances of ruining the meat is much higher. The chances of the meat, you know, spoiling or being gamey is, is much higher, uh, all those things. And so just being prepared and knowing what causes meat to go bad, what, what causes meat to have a gamey taste, uh, and I had I had similar situation. You know, I've been hunting elk my whole life, and so I I understood the process of breaking it down and packing it out. But even with that, you know, there's some things that I've learned even in the last ten years that have helped tremendously. And and I think the one you know going back to your question of are you is it unethical to drop into some areas during some parts of the year and and shoot an elk worrying about the meat and I have a, a good friend who's a butcher uh, here locally, and he he told me if you'll take and open up that ham, the rear, the hind quarter, if you have any concerns about something going bad, the very first place it's going to go bad is right along that big leg bone in the hind quarter because there's so much meat there. It's just an insulator, and that bone yeah. heat it just it gets trapped in there, and so you'll get bone sour the first place on that hind quarter. So if you just take your knife quarter the thing out, hang the quarter, and then just take a knife and run it along that leg bone and open it up so that the leg bone can release all that heat. He's like, you won't have any problem even in extremely hot temperatures. And so we started doing that early September. When we get an elk, we just hang the quarter. And I don't, I've learned the first couple of times it was, I just took a knife and just run it right down to the bone and then just make a straight cut. And so I'm cutting through all the different muscle groups and everything. Now I'll take and actually partially bone out that hind quarter and I'll break yep. down each muscle group and just basically fillet it off of the bone and open it up. So it looks like a, I don't know, blooming onion. It, whatever, <laughs> whatever, yeah, just say whatever your favorite steakhouse is, but um, it, it basically looks like that. The bone is hanging from the tree and then all the, the muscle groups are basically filleted off it, but still attached to it so that heat can come out. And it makes a huge difference at how quickly that heat can be released and how quickly that meat cools at that point. Yeah. And those are cuts you're going to make when you get home anyhow. Yep. So whether you do them out in the field or do them at home, it's it's part of the process to get to the end end result. Yep. And we'll even, you know, go as far as once it's cooled, I'll cut off the individual pieces, those individual muscle groups and put them in the game bag once it's cooled. I don't like to do that, you know, just cut yeah. them off hot and throw them in a game bag and they just stack on each other and stay warm in there, but once I open it up and let it hang for a couple hours, it's I mean it's you can feel it's cool to the touch and well, <clears throat> you graduated with an engineering degree i did the first two years and one of the courses we all had to take was heat and mass transfer yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, that i mean you don't need to take the engineering course to understand that heat transfer is a function of the difference between the object that is hot versus the atmospheric temperature and the surface area that is exposed to the different temp where the different temperatures occur. It, that that's really and, in its and the thickness of the material, right? Yep. And that's all you really need to know to understand how heat transfer is an important part of meat care. Yep. 
Now, if it's, I mean, if it's really cold I, out, it's going to change temperature much more rapidly. If it's <laughs> if it's a thin material, it's going to cool off much more rapidly. And yeah, yeah. Just, uh, open yeah, it up. You don't <laughs> you don't have to go stick your tongue to a really frozen flagpole to understand heat transfer. <laughs> But that's always a fun lesson to use to teach people about it. Oh, yeah. When they pull away and part of their tongue is still stuck on the flagpole. I'm just speaking from experience of watching that happen. Yeah. Uh, But AI, it's stuff like that, that until we get listener questions, I, I think everybody has a tendency to skip over a lot of stuff. Yeah. And I, I love getting these questions. I read every one of them. I put them in folders and I sort them for what we hopefully get a chance to talk about in podcasts. And, uh, they just go to the contact us page at elktalkpodcast.com, right? That's it. Yep. Just go there, contact page, put in your question or your comment and hit submit. And somehow through the inner workings of the outer web, we, it ends up in our little box here, a little box with lights on it that has a screen. And Yeah. Good thing Al Gore invented the internet or we'd be in a hell of a pickle, Corey. That is. We'd, we'd be picking up these little pink sheets that the secretary put on our desk. So-and-so called with this question. We'd have to have a secretary. Well, that's true. We're low low overhead operation. That's right. <laughs> I, I'm if I if we have a secretary at my house, it's me. Yep. Are you the secretary at your house too? Yeah, I'm. Uh, so I leave the my kids notes every morning of their chores to do, and <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about internet and email and all that. And this morning, they 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 like to get up and you know check their Instagram and and uh, maybe watch some. Dude, perfect on YouTube, or you know, use the uh, the internet to prevent them from having to do real chores. So uh, my uh, yeah. my structure lately has been to give them their list of chores, and then at the bottom remind them that there's no internet, TV, Xbox, Instagram, emails, and I make I I try to cover everything I can think of that they might do <laughs> to uh, postpone doing chores. And this morning I added no telegrams also, just in case they thought that they could get away with that. <laughs> Telegram. <laughs> uh, before we leave this one, you said that in your uh, let, let's let's do two things. Uh, one, we never. I, I tell people don't ever pay retail. Wait until <laughs> wait until <laughs> wait until Randy and Corey give you a promo code. That's right. So uh, your destination elk is coming up. We'll get to that. But your University of Elk Hunting course. People can get a discount on that by using promo code ELKTALK. ELKTALK, yep. And it's going to save them $20, which is 20%, which in my world, 20% is a, a significant discount. Yeah. I, I, I w- the, you don't need an engineering degree to come to the proper decision when this is the two options. Do I want to pay 100% or do I want to pay 80%? <laughs> Yep. I mean, if it's people like, don't want to flip, flip it around and look at it as an investment, would you rather gain 0% on your investment or would you rather gain 20% on your investment? There you go. Yeah. And 
<clears throat> I mean, if people don't want to use the promo code, that's fine. It's more money in Corey's pocket, but you know, I, I would suggest they don't pay retail. I just I have a, a problem with paying full retail. Me too. So on anything, but <laughs> right. So I'm going to go back to another thing. This gets to the pack and meat out. You use XO packs, right? I do. I use Mr. Ranch packs. Yep. Do you, uh, what's your thought when you see some guy walking around out there with a fanny pack? <laughs> I, my first thought is that used to be me, and it wasn't oh, me a, too. It wasn't a complete <laughs> fanny pack. It was a, a double decker fanny pack that had straps that came over the shoulder, and yeah. I've packed quarters on that. And those straps on the shoulder, Ooh. they were like an inch wide, but they were the thin nylon dig into your shoulder straps and that was the only place that they attached was over your shoulders and there was no way to transfer the weight to your hips and i'll tell you when i got my first real load hauling backpack it it was a night and day difference comfortable shoulder straps the weight transferred down to your hips where it's supposed to and you could haul heavy loads on those things much more comfortably so that's my first yep. thought when i see somebody it's like oh i remember those days that poor, yeah. poor person <laughs> yeah i i that's what goes through my mind also oh yeah that was not good and a few times i shot an elk back in those days i wasted one whole trip going back to the truck to get my external frame meat hauling pack, yep. which I think I bought at a third, not even a secondhand store, a third hand store. <laughs> uh, it got the job done, but then I, I had to carry about two pounds of paracord just to find enough places to tie it off to the frame. Uh, so, see, and I was much point, more efficient from a from a younger age on that because my my whole strategy was carry the minimum that you need you know maybe a bottle of water unless i thought that there was some moisture on leaves that i could lick off halfway (laughs) through the day (laughs) i I learned to carry a knife i carried a knife i carried a flashlight and maybe a couple (laughs) snickers bars so i just i needed a just a small little pack and i was lightweight that was back when i was hunting in tennis shoes and i was Mm -hmm. able to basically ultra marathon through the elk woods and if i got something my whole strategy was leave it go back get the external pack frame and come back. And I carried bungee cords from a young age, so I didn't need all of that extra paracord. I was able to bungee the the meat onto the pack frame. But And the whole philosophy was, I don't want to carry a 10 or a 12-pound backpack that's big enough to carry elk meat. That's just a waste yeah. of energy throughout the day. So I felt it was more efficient to carry a light pack, make an extra trip of two or three miles back to the truck, get the external pack frame, come back, and then haul it out in two loads. And, yeah, backpacks have come what, so far. What, what has age taught you? That, well, not necessarily age, but I think just the, uh, the improvements Experience. in backpacks over the last five years even. Uh, I can hunt in a four-pound backpack now that mm-hmm. will haul two quarters of an elk out comfortably. You know, I'm just the the, things are so much more compact that I can compact something down and not feel like I have this great big 12 pound bulky backpack on my back. I can carry 15 pounds, including the backpack and water and hunt and feel comfortable and prepared. And then when I shoot something, I can put two quarters in that backpack if I want to and bring it back out. And I still might grab an external pack frame when I get back to the truck and go back and get the other two quarters. Uh, 
but I don't need to anymore. Yeah, I don't carry two quarters anymore. I that's that, that was. I'm getting there. Okay, trust me. You got about four more four more years, and you'll see the light on that one. Also, I might be you'll, one of the only people that goes straight from carrying two quarters at a time to carrying no quarters. There you go. Yeah. How I are hunted, you going to do that? Not, I, not I, shoot anything? I hunted with llamas this last year. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, uh, I'm liking Randy's philosophy of no need to even carry a quarter anymore. No. I, uh, the, the, as, uh, my wife says, if God had meant for me to sleep in a tent, he wouldn't have invented motels. <laughs> well, if God meant for me to haul out 120 pounds in one load of elk meat, he wouldn't have put llamas on the face of this planet. <laughs> so, using my wife's theory on that. Um, but do you, do your friends at EXO have any promo code for your folks? So, the the great thing about EXO, and they're local, they're, they're friends of mine that started this company. They're hardcore backcountry hunters. And... I don't think they they anticipated the demand for these kind of backpacks like we're talking about. And they have done they, – they haven't had to do any advertising, any marketing. Uh, you know, they have social media accounts and everything, but they don't pay for any marketing, and they do not offer any discounts. Huh. Uh, because basically they said – and they don't have dealers. It's all, it's all direct right. on their website because – they said, you know what, we can't keep up with demand. They're in their, what, sixth year now? We can't keep up with demand. Uh, Why would we discount it? Yeah, we, if we discount it, we have to provide that to a dealer if we sell through a dealer at a discount, and we can't keep up with our direct orders. So they don't. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if you were leading into this or if this is just an opportunity for me to, to plug the online course again. They they offer a ten percent discount to University of Elk Hunting online course members, and that is the only okay. discount that's that's available or given out by EXO. And you have to order it through their website, and you have to use your membership number that they cross reference to make sure you're a member. But yeah, okay. Well, Mystery about, Ranch. I was just gonna say, what about Mystery they, Ranch? They they're based right here in Bozeman, uh, Dana who is the founder before that he had Dana designs. Uh, and I knew him back then. He, he is the most colorful, crazy guy you could ever meet. Yeah. He, he is a lot of people will call him the godfather of the backpack world, which explains how long he's been at it. But when he started mystery ranch in 2000, let's see. 2001 or two, I think it was. It was intended for his hardcore backcountry people. And then he started into the hunting line, I think 2005 or six. So I bought my first pack from them in 2006. And I paid full retail for like the first three or four packs I bought. But now, if you don't want to pay full retail, you go to gohunt.com. And in their store, they carry Mr. Ranch packs. And if when you check out, and use promo code Randy, they'll give you 10% off. So Very back cool. to your old theory, you know, do you <laughs> want to pay 100% for a Mystery Ranch pack or do you want to pay 90% for a Mystery yeah. Ranch pack? So, and and for, no, I, for those who are in the market for a new pack, and, uh, you know, I, I was always lightweight was my my goal. And so I always had two packs. Forever I had a two-pack system, a lightweight day pack 
that I could carry just the bare necessities for the day. And then back at the truck, I had, and I even graduated from an external frame for a while to a, a regular 10 or 12 pound backpack that could carry a lot of weight and was comfortable. But mm-hmm. I think most of these packs that you and I use, I call them crossover packs because they cross over between a lightweight day pack and a sturdy, heavyweight, comfortable freight internal pack, frame yeah, yeah internal frame freight pack and you know i don't know what the one you use and i know mystery ranch has a ton of different models and uh yeah. exo has <laughs> several different capacity sizes they use one frame but my my pack is four pounds 4.2 pounds um, and that's the one that i use to haul out a lot of weight on and I yeah. know mystery mystery ranch exo you know there's there's another brand or two out there that are along that same line of thinking of hey let's let's combine all of these features into one and find a used to be you had to sacrifice now i think it's really to the point of these backpacks are they're doing it all without sacrificing yeah and for me i use a metcalf or the bear tooth and i can compress them so flat that it like you said it is virtually a day pack all i've got in there is my water you know some game bags knife headlamp the basics of what i need and it's so flat that it it's not like i have this thing hanging 20 inches off my back brushing in against everything making all kinds of noise i can hunt very comfortably with that and and mystery ranch their claim to fame is load carriage uh which I've yet to have one of their packs where I could carry more than the pack. <laughs> I, my body, even back, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, my body was the weak link in the equation of how much could I get out of there. The pack, I started out, um, you know, with the, what all their models that they had back then, and I just could not. <laughs> I, I couldn't carry the amount that I could put in there. And uh, so anyhow, the the whole pack discussion is one that is a helpful solution to hunting in these places where ethic, you know, the ethical concern of meat is lessened again. It's lowered when you have a pack that allows you to do what you and I do. Yeah. I mean, I, my first elk hunting backpack was my Jansport book bag from college. <laughs> it was blue with those, like a suede leather bottom. And uh, I fortunately, I didn't kill an elk while I had that. So I, I, had a, I, I had an old, old military rucksack. I mean, it was literally two straps that came back into this great big heavy canvas pack. And I can remember my first, it wasn't even an elk hunt. I went on a backpacking trip one summer and I loaded that thing up with everything I could put in it. And I had, I literally had a cast iron skillet. I had a little thing of Crisco frying grease. I had, I mean, I was, (laughs) this pack could hold it. I was putting it in there. That was, that's what backpacking was about. I'm going in comfort. And I had uh, probably a 12 pound sleeping bag. And I can remember getting back to the lake that we packed into to fish and thought, I will never 
carry this much weight again. <laughs> <laughs> that was your training regimen. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's just amazing to look at how far I've come, uh, you know, in, in my uh, experience and intelligence and how far gear has come. You know, my sleeping yeah. bag now is, I think two pounds or under two pounds and it's a zero degree bag. And you know, that my, Backpack or my sleeping bag back then literally was a 12 pound canvas, heavy duty, <laughs> something you could probably sleep out all winter in now. And uh, you needed your own Sherpa just to carry your sleeping exactly. bag. Yeah. yeah. And now, now we have llamas. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm t- tomorrow, I'm doing a thing called Shop Stories. We do them for my YouTube channel. And it, my crew was looking at some of these old pictures when I first started hunting. And I didn't even own a camera until I moved to Montana in 1990. So we're talking retro here. Uh, and they were looking at it, and they're like, you you hunted in that? I'm like, yeah, that's all I could afford. For the first three years, I I didn't notice it till they, they picked it out and commented. For my first three years of hunting, my Converse All-Stars that I wore as my basketball shoes in high school, were my hunting boots. Yep. Snow, it, it didn't matter. I, I couldn't afford a pair of really nice pack boots like, you know, the ones we wear now. So I made do. And I got to looking. Yeah, I'm duck hunting. Oh, there's my Converse All-Stars. Oh, I'm <laughs> elk hunting. Oh, whitetail. Oh, I shot this antelope in a blizzard. Yeah, oh, Converse All-Stars. And so we're, we're going to do this thing about my evolution of gear and it's something you and i have said many times and it was a principle that i had back then was i was never going to let the price of gear keep me from hunting i was going to make do with whatever i had but i was still going hunting and i think you and i've said that many times on this podcast is as much as gear helps and it provides us some comforts and it are these little incremental things that we find worthwhile as our budgets can afford it I don't think you or I have ever let the price of gear take a higher priority than the cost to go out in the woods with a tag in hand and actually hunt. Yep. No, and that's, I think we all start in the same place. And, you know, it was cotton based <laughs> jeans or not jeans, but uh, camo pants from Walmart. And I remember when I got my first pair of Walmart hiking shoes. You know, it wasn't basketball shoes anymore. And I was in college and just thought, I'm going to try a pair of these. They're 20 bucks. And I mean, I blew them out, ripped them out in the first two days of shed hunting in them. But they were way more comfortable for those two days than my basketball shoes were. They had traction. (laughs) That was the crazy thing is I wasn't slipping and falling on wet grass the whole time trying to climb a hill anymore. And so, you know, I think we all start there and then we just start to look at, okay, what do I need? What's what's the top thing that I need to get out and, and either be safe or be comfortable? And that's how we all start. And we start collecting it there. And by the you know, at some point we get to a point where it's like, okay, I know this isn't a necessity at all, but I really like that or that, you know. Yeah. I I carry a little thing called pyro putty now. It's this little battery yeah. charger starter with some little fire starter. And forever, all I carried was a, a box of waterproof matches. Yep. But I've spent a long time trying to get wet wood burning before out when I needed a fire going. And now I have this quick little thing that, yeah, it's a little bit, little bit 
bigger and maybe an ounce or two heavier, but it's sure convenient. So just little things like that. Yeah, you don't need it, but man, it, it makes things a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. So I think people will hear that from you and I, anytime someone asks us an equipment question. Yeah. We're blessed where we get to work with some of the great companies, but we would never tell somebody go spend all this money on gear if it means you can't afford a tag or the gas to get to the trailhead. Yep. And I don't think any of our partners, any of our sponsors would want people to do that. Nope. They would say, hey, put it on your priority list, but go hunting. Yep. Absolutely. So I was surprised that you would be able to do a podcast today, Corey, because you've got a really big thing going on tonight. <clears throat> you're you're launching version three called Destination Grouse, is it? <laughs> you must I, you must have got a sneak peek at one of the episodes. I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we uh so so in full disclosure, we are launching Destination Elk. That's our annual video series where we uh, basically take viewers through every day of our elk season and uh, it's a day-by-day series and we uh, this year we had some slow days and I attribute that 100% to the fact that one of Randy's cameramen, Dale, came and accompanied us on our that first week of hunting and I didn't realize until about day three or day four but the only thing we were seeing was grouse and we yeah. we loaded we loaded a cooler with grouse this season. Grouse hunting was phenomenal, but I think it was day three or four after I filled my limit again that day that Donnie said, that "Only figures we have Randy's camera guy with us. All he can find <laughs> is grouse." <laughs> we, uh, uh, we we did have fun. We we got grouse, which I love grouse, and hunting was slow enough that I wouldn't even have given Randy a hard time for chasing grouse during those days. Uh, because they're just the elk weren't weren't cooperating, but we kick off that series tonight uh, with our Idaho archery hunt, and that's on the Elk 101 YouTube channel. And it's always it's always so exciting because we are finally able to share the the content that we collected from last hunting season. And uh, you know, I think the series, the way we do it, <laughs> it just it shares everything we go through. It shares those slow days. It shows that. We don't just step out of the truck and elk are bugling every time we go out. That I think we spent five days and only had one real elk encounter until the fifth day. Um, wow. there, there's a lot of stuff learned, and there's a lot of other action there that I think, you know, I, a lot of us got burned out, I think, on just the 22-minute episode of the, the highlights of, here's the two call-ins and a kill and it has to be a kill and i think that's what i've always looked up to with what you've done is you know you've shared everything you've shared the adventure the highs the lows the success the failures everything and i think it's just so easy to relate to to that because it's what all of us experience yeah so that's that's our goal with that video series sharing cool sharing the adventure i I notice that and I, I suspect I'm probably excluded from the prize drawings, which is fine. <laughs> I, I trust me. I, I I got enough junk in my shop. I don't need to be included in your prize drawing. But uh, I I can't remember how many episodes you it said there were in the email I got. About a lot. Yeah, twenty seven or twenty eight. Okay. And on certain certain days of the week, you're giving away a ton of prizes. So every single episode, there will be four gear winners. 
so in the past, we've done one gear winner each day. This year, there will be four winners each day. So we're spreading the love. Uh, we brought in a ton of good gear packages. I mean, we're giving away elk call packages. We're giving away custom Yeti mugs and bottles that are you know customized with the Destination Elk logo. We're giving away Mountain Ops Bugleberry, which you know Bugleberry is just a, a September thing, but they brought in a whole bunch for us to launch Destination Elk. So we're giving that away, and then uh, our friends over at Peaks uh, that make the Sissy Stick trekking poles. We're giving away trekking poles uh, in each episode. But then the really cool thing that we've done in the past is. Each episode where we're successful, where we uh, where we put meat in the cooler, we give away a bigger gear item. And so this year, uh, we're giving away. Uh, I've got the list right here in front of me. In fact, I was just finalizing it. We are giving away a five hundred dollar gift card to Mountain Ops. We are giving away three new Prime bows. We're giving Whoa. away three Exo backpacks. Speaking of Exo backpacks. We're giving away two Yeti Tundra 210 coolers. Those are the big coolers that you can fit an entire elk in with the meat still on the bone. I, I got some college students right next to my office here that are living in a Yeti 210. <laughs> I'm sure that's what's going on over there. That's how they saved in rent. They, yep. bought, they went and bought a Yeti 210. Yep. Sleeping bag fits right in. They can probably grow <laughs> up and roll around. I always said they say they're grizzly proof or bear proof. I always said I was if I saw a grizzly bear, I was going to climb inside of it and have somebody latch it. And I think it would make good footage to have a grizzly bear rolling that around. But uh, we've got their new Yeti has new camp chairs and their loadout go box. And then... We've, uh, we, I think you and I have talked a little bit about the electric bikes, and, and we've hunted mm -hmm. off electric bikes, but our friends at Baku, that used to be uh, Backcountry e-bikes, and they shortened it up into Baku, but uh, we're giving away one of their mule electric bikes, which is like a $5,000 e-bike. So over $20,000 in gear giveaways throughout Destination Elk, and the cool thing is we have 27 episodes. And in those 27 episodes, we kill 10 elk. So we have, I mean, it, there are some days where it's just like big gear after big gear after big gear, just two or three days in a row. So, mm. yeah. Well, so all, all people have to do to enter for that is watch the episode and then on YouTube, the Elk One on YouTube channel, and then down in the comments on YouTube, just make a comment. Then it doesn't have to be, it, it can be anything. You can put a smiley face, you can raise your hand, you can say, I want to win free gear. You can say, um, Donnie's dad jokes are lame, or Corey's strategy for success in each episode doesn't make any sense. You can say mean things, nice things, anything, and you're entered to win. Hmm. Just so be if, aware if that I, I read the comments, and if there's a mean comment, I'll probably delete it, and that way you won't be entered. So yeah, say something nice. Well, people are saying, well, it's a good thing Newberg doesn't give away big prizes when whenever he kills something because he wouldn't give away any prizes in a year. <laughs> That's not true. We we actually uh, we got a little generous and actually gave away gear when we killed grouse because we had extra gear really? to give away, and so you would be able to give away gear every day. Yeah, if, if that was uh, the case. If, yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, that's a heck of a deal. I'm glad you carved out some time to do a podcast. 
this morning with all you got going on there. I'm going to chime in. You, you got the, was it the live premiere an hour early? Not that the audience, because this podcast, the live premiere will already be gone by the time this podcast is there. But I'm going to chime in and, and heckle Donnie because he invited me on a hunt this year, but he told me I'd have to get a haircut. And I looked at his mohawk and he told me his dad joke about, Oh, they get, I went to a barber where they said you get two thirds off and I thought it was a good deal. I looked at that haircut and when he said, look, you got to get a haircut to be on destination L. I'm like, I ain't doing it. I'm, I'll be busy. Don't call me. Yeah. So. And then you saw his haircut and you're like, I'm never getting a haircut like that. Whew, never. I, I mean, I can't even imagine. I, if I went home with a haircut like that, that's the kind of haircut you have where the guys take you out behind the pub and kind of work you over and they'll give you their own haircut. I have so. already, I've already warned him that I, I put up with it through elk season. He still has it. So we do outros really? at the end of each episode and just kind of recap and talk about some of the things that might've happened uh, that didn't make it on film or something. And then, you know, talk about the giveaways and things. And he still has his Mohawk and we're doing these outros. And I mean, it's, I thought it looked like a horse's mane during elk season. We should see it now. It's, it's, it's worth tuning in and watching the outro just to get a glimpse of Donnie's current mohawk. <laughs> uh, keep, keep in mind, he'll be 51 next month. So hmm. it's, uh, hey, he's, he's going through the, you know, his, maybe, maybe that's his version of a midlife crisis. Maybe. You know, if that's all that it is, he's, they're getting off easy if that's the extent of his midlife crisis. <laughs> uh, it just Dude, uh, it, it completes the character for sure. It, it does. Great guy. Um, do we want to talk about any policy, politics, legislation things on this podcast, or do we want to save it for a future podcast? Man, I say let's save it for a future, but if there are a lot of them. You know, we've got the Montana uh-huh. deal that's going to hose non-residents yeah. if it goes through. I know California is trying to ban bear hunting. Uh, Seems like yeah. there's something in Oregon or Washington. So yeah, lots of stuff. Yeah, it's it's, it's legislative it, season. There you go. We we always talk about application season, which it is. And I'm going to do a shameless plug here. Go to GoHunt.com, sign up for the Insider, use promo code ELKTALK, and they'll give you a $50 gift card for use in their gear shop. But uh, we don't have a promo code for legislative season. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's there's no discount on stupid ideas that are coming through right now. No. And my wife and I took a little vacation last week because I felt bad. You know how many podcasts we've done, Corey, where I was babysitting that dog? Yeah. We we finally put it down. Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry. So I felt bad. So yeah. I'm like, darling, let's let's leave town for a few days here. And she said, well, let's go visit my family. So we did. So I was on vacation last week, trying to fend off the ridiculous bills coming through the Montana legislature, and uh, it was quite interesting. Uh, one senator commented, got up. I got 4,000 emails on this bill, but I'm voting for it anyhow. (laughs) Okay. Some other guy gets in his hometown newspaper, says, I got 7,000 emails on this bill, but I voted for it anyhow. And it's like a badge of honor of like, well, 7,000 people 
told me not to vote for it and 14 people vote said I should vote for it boy I'm I'm a leader I'm a you know I'm a tough guy I represent like, the people yeah it's like really can I, can I, we'll we'll get into politics in the next podcast but in Montana back in the late 1800s how it used to work is senators were not elected by the you know the the vote of the people they were elected by the state legislature so montana we had this uh copper baron a guy who would made millions in the copper industry and uh he wanted to be a u.s senator uh his name was last name was clark uh, and unfortunately, the, this is a bit of a smear on Clark County, Nevada. That's who Clark County, Nevada is now named after. Uh, but uh, he made his fortunes, and he wanted to be a U.S. senator. So he goes to the Montana legislature and gives everybody an envelope with $10,000 in it and says, vote for me. <laughs> and so he gets he gets to go to D.C. as one of Montana's senators. Well, the media, there's some astute media person who does a big expose about the corruptness of how this guy became a U.S. senator. And his comment still sticks with me. And I always say it to a politician I know is on the take or has a lot of political debts to repay. And this Senator Clark says, well, I've never bought a politician that wasn't for sale. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he is quite matter of fact about it. Look, don't blame me. These are the people that are for sale. I'm just a buyer. You know, you're going to blame the customer or you're going to blame the, the merchant selling his position and his votes. And so uh, I often joke somewhat, you know, sometimes you're joking, but there's a level of truth in it. In that same hallway, this same Capitol building where Senator Clark bought and sold votes for cash. I'm fond of saying, well, I guess the only votes that were bought were the ones that were for sale. And even today, you want to see the blood pressure raise <laughs> of somebody who proudly announces that I'm I'm a maverick. No, you're for sale. Maverick was that guy on Top Gun, you know, <laughs> him and Goose. Don't, don't, don't be playing this BS on me that you're a maverick. You are bought and paid for. Yep. When you were talking about all that, I was like, man, I'm sure glad we don't have to worry about that nowadays, right? yeah right uh so yeah let's let's do a a follow-up podcast about that bill and maybe just politics in general yeah it won't be a dry but i think it's important for people to understand how politics influence hunting regulations because it's not your fishing game department in most states that is no. setting the course for fees, for regulations, for policy. Allocation between residents and non-residents. Exactly. Yeah. It's, they're yeah. controlled by the legislature. And so, yeah, it's, yeah. It, we, can, uh, we can get into some of those things. I know Idaho has its own cobweb of, yeah. of messed up things. And, yeah. and my, my end goal of always talking about policy and politics on my podcast or on other platforms is for 
people to understand how the process works and how they can have some influence in the process, even though they might feel powerless that they've not bought anyone who's for sale, unlike Senator Clark. Uh, There's still the power of the people. Um, the beauty of our country is the power of the democracy. The final power rests in the hands of the people if they choose to use it. So when I get emails saying, turn it off, I, over that weekend, I was getting text messages from some of the senators on that committee. Would you stop this? I just deleted 400 emails in the last hour. (laughs) Don't delete them, read them. That's yeah. your job. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyhow, we'll get into that in the next podcast, that and other stuff, and and maybe show people how they can be a bit of an advocate who, and, and I'll just preface it for people who might want to follow that next episode, is that in the last 20, 25 years, some of these smart uh, strategic political people have said, you know what, on these hunting, fishing, wildlife issues, we have to pull this away from game commissions. We have to bring it over into the legislature because those folks on those game commissions, they're really accountable to the hunters and anglers. And we don't like that. We'd lose over there. So let's drag it over to the legislature. (laughs) Because we're bought off by our friends. Yeah. And then they also look at it and say, well, hunters and anglers historically have relied on their 501c3 organizations. I mean, we work with the great one, the Elk Foundation, right? Yeah. But I don't care what 501c3 organization it is. They are heavily strung, tied up by the rules and the laws related to lobbying and politics. So the opponents look at that and say, look, they send all their money to these 501c3 organizations who can't even come and participate in this. Or if they do, they have to, you know, they're they're asking for trouble. So all of us who send our $100 to the Elk Foundation or, you know, whatever group, uh, the topic is for, whether it's fishing or whatever, guess what? They can't, by law, they run a huge risk if they go over there and play in the political arena. So what's left? What's left is us. So don't email me and say, hey, I sent my $100 to whatever organization and I don't think they were involved enough. Well, they can't be by law. And that's part of the strategy the other side takes advantage of, is that we we don't have the infrastructure right now to fend off those battles in legislatures. We, we are so far, we, we've got so much catching up to do as far as building infrastructure and awareness of how this process is working and stop the land grab that's going on because there are groups out there in every state legislature. We'll use Montana as an example, maybe because I'm so involved in that. Uh, but I don't care. You, you mentioned Idaho. You guys have had <laughs> your share of craziness, Colorado, uh, Utah, every state. It, it doesn't matter. Whatever state you live in, you have some of these crazy bills in your legislature and they're hoping that you don't get wind of it. Or if you do get wind of it, they're hoping that you don't have the infrastructure in place to 
mount a good opposition to it. Yep. So. so it was pretty cool to get a bunch of these senators to express their annoyance of having been contacted by 7,000 people who will be affected by this bill. It's just so bizarre. <laughs> and and I can tell you this, you know, it's here's the deal, Corey, the, the bill we're talking about is one that gives 60% of Montana's non-resident tags, gives preference to anyone who uses an outfitter. Yep. Uh, and so that means all the rest of the people, the people we generally represent, the self-guided person, they get to fight over the other 40%. And you don't have to have an engineering degree to understand the the math of how that affects the draw odds and opportunity for the other 40%. But I can assure you that if this, and it, it'll probably make it out of committee because the skids were heavily greased, but then it goes to the full Senate floor. And there are a lot of senators telling me, Randy, we don't want this on the Senate floor. We don't want 7,000 emails in our inbox. Yep. We don't, and, and here's the other part in Montana, we passed a ballot initiative in 2010 that overturned outfitter set-asides for tags. Well, in effect, what this bill does is says, all you voters in 2010 who express your displeasure with funneling a guaranteed part of a, of a government transaction stream, funneling that to a small handful of people, you, you told us you didn't like that, but we're, we're smarter than all of you. We know what's best for you. <laughs> That's the job, job of the government, right? Yeah. Do you want to be a Montana senator or a Montana representative who says, we're smarter than all you people who voted this away in 2010? Do you want to be the governor and have this bill on your desk? And having the arrogant, self-righteous action of saying, yeah, we're going to overturn a citizen's ballot initiative, even though we got 7,000 emails in one weekend against it. Uh, so, anyhow, <laughs> it'll be a fun podcast when we do that. Oh, one. man, I'm I'm excited to learn. Yeah, well, there's, yeah. there's not much, not much to learn. No, there it's is. Just, I think, and people don't understand how much of a voice they really can have, and that's you know those seven thousand yep. emails. There, yeah, they might have voted for it, but they know it's dead before it gets out there. There's no way it can go through with that much. Yeah, and if it does, you know, this is a long game. Yep. This is all this stuff is happening now that used to, we used to talk about this stuff within our fishing game commissions. The, the, the arena, the Super Bowl is, was played last weekend in Tampa, Florida. Well, they said, we don't want the Super Bowl played where you guys know the ground rules. We want to take it over here in the political arena where you guys are complete novices. You're disorganized. You don't have the funding to buy and sell Senate votes or House votes. We, we that, Let's take it over there. So we got ways to, to combat that, and that's what we'll focus on to show people how effective they can be. Yep. So. All right. I've rambled enough, Corey. What do we say we, uh, <laughs> we let people back to their day and you go – uh, get your destination elk stuff ready to launch, and uh, I'll show up tonight and chime in on grouse hunting or something. Excellent. Yep. For the next uh, 28 days on the Elk 101 YouTube channel, 
We'll have a new episode every night at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Yeah. So. Oh, man, I, I almost, I, I had this pulled up, uh, and I'm trying to figure out uh, if I should talk about it or not, because <laughs> it's 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 going to give people, uh, well, I'm going to talk about it anyhow. Um, it's about the Elk Foundation. Uh, there's a place, and, and I would say go out to rmef.org become a member first of all but in their news uh and i knew this one was coming uh the elk foundation uh worked with wyoming game and fish and a landowner to create an access easement uh on some land and it's just another way that you can do access you don't have to actually go out and buy the land if you don't don't want to or maybe sometimes the landowner says i don't want to sell the land i want to sell an easement across the land to get to the public land so elk foundation just did that in southwest wyoming and it opens up i mean you could get to this stuff before if you had a 40 mule uh pack train uh or you could skydive into it or something uh (laughs) But there's over 32,000 acres now where the access has been improved significantly. Wow. Um, And so the reason I I bring this up is this was done through easements, and it's working with uh, Wyoming Game and Fish and RMEF. And one thing you will find in many of these issues we're going to talk about in state legislatures is there's an attack on easements right now. People say, "We we, we don't like easements. Well, what's not to like about an easement? The landowner gets to keep the land, but the public gets access across the land to their public land. Seems like win-win. Yeah. But all these quote-unquote property right advocates in these state legislatures want to tell you what you can do with your property. Yep. (laughs) Uh, So, anyhow, RMEF, Wyoming Game and Fish doing great things for for access and for hunters. So that's that's where you can make a difference also is supporting these kind of things. So, all right, Corey, okay. go, go do your thing. We will Sorry do to it. keep everybody. No, yeah. we, uh, we had some good discussion there. I'm excited for the next one. So I'm going to do some research before it and have some good topics. All right. Thanks folks. Appreciate yep. you being here.